Welcome to the First Take Podcast. We are here with uh, my colleagues, Virginia Lee and Simon King, and then myself, Michael Flanagan. On this week's episode, we will be discussing a spat of M&A deals and what it suggests for 2022. We'll take a closer look at the Pfizer Arena deal from this week, and then we'll walk through some of the highlights from the NASH conference from this week. Please like, subscribe, and thanks for listening. So this week saw two of the biggest M&A deals of the year announced. CSL said it would acquire Vifor Pharma for $11.7 billion, and Pfizer announced plans to acquire Arena Pharmaceuticals for $6.7 billion. These come on the back of what has been a relatively quiet year for M&A. Virginia, do you think these deals are a sign of more to come? And what's your take on the outlook for M&A heading into 2022? Yeah, so you can never really predict M&A, but overall, the outlook does seem to be really rosy heading into 2022, and there's a lot of factors contributing to that here. So first, there's been a bit of a you-can-only-go-up-from-here mentality since M&A activity was generally pretty slow in the early part of the year, and that was driven by a couple of things. Um, First, we saw valuations were pretty high across the board in biotech in early 2021. COVID drove a lot of investors towards healthcare, and we were in what some would call bubble territory um, with biotech stocks. And then secondly, companies were generally pretty flush with cash. 2020 was a huge fundraising year and we saw a lot of small to mid-sized biotechs raise a lot of funds and they had enough cash runway to really move ahead independently. And then lastly, there were some concerns over increased FTC scrutiny of pharma M&A deals. Um, At the beginning of the year, the acting FTC chair said that they were going to be taking an, an aggressive approach towards pharmaceutical mergers, and it wasn't clear at the time whether they were reflecting, referring to just big mergers on the level of Bristol-Myers and Celgene, or whether they were also talking about smaller deals um, that are really the bread and butter of the industry. So that, that kind of set the scene for 2021, but heading into 2022, the landscape has shifted quite a bit. We've seen several billion dollar deals close um, without without any troubles. So like Santa Fe's acquisitions of Cadmon and of Translate Bio, Pfizer's take out of Trillium, and that's seemed to quell some of the concerns. And then biotech valuations have also undergone a correction over, over the course of the year. So they're at a level that are much more attractive to buyers heading into the new year. And then when you look at the potential acquirers themselves, you see that big farmers are just sitting on enormous cash reserves. So they have a lot of money to spend on M&A, especially a company like Pfizer with billions coming in from their COVID vaccine sales and now they're antiviral. And then the need has never gone away for pharmas to look for their next big pipeline programs, their next big platforms that are going to drive growth and then offset moving patent expirations. So, you know, we have pharmas that are well positioned to make acquisitions and we have that combined with subdued biotech valuations and some of the uncertainties around FTC scrutiny lifted. So while there's no guarantees, the consensus view right now is that the stage is set for what could be a really active M&A period. 
And you just mentioned Pfizer there. And I think obviously a lot of people are going to be looking at Pfizer to be a trailblazer, given the cash flow. Um, and I thought what was you know, quite interesting about the Arena deal in particular was the timing. Uh, the focal point of this deal is, is really an ulcerative colitis drug, which has got phase three data due to read out early next year. And so that's going to provide a really near term opportunity for people to evaluate whether this is money well spent, whether the deal is a, is a, is a good one. And I think you could possibly argue in normal circumstances that the buying company would perhaps like a little bit more time for the dust to settle. So, you know, we're looking at this and we're looking for sort of signs of what Pfizer is going to do. But perhaps this is evidence that they're willing to bend the rules slightly, given that it not only has a lot of M&A firepower because of the, the COVID situation with the vaccine and the antiviral, but I think there's now an expectation baked in from shareholders that they are going to do deals and they need to do deals. I think the other thing, sort of staying focused on this deal with Arena for a, for a moment, um, it's obviously a pretty spectacular validation of, of Arena's pivot from a company that sort of eight, 10 years ago was really struggling to make its mark in the field of obesity. It's pivoted to immunology. And then the other is Big Pharma's continued focus on these types of immunology assets. And in this case, it's Arena's S1P modulator, Atresimod. Now, these drugs maybe lack the wow factor that biotech investors are, are attracted to, but there's clearly significant commercial attraction from Big Pharma. And Pfizer was talking up Estrasimods uh, this week as a potential best-in-class agent, which you'd naturally expect in these circumstances. But key opinion leaders in the UC field do sort of agree with this. They think it's potentially safer than other drugs in the same class. And we've actually had KOLs in the past mention that you know, the drug would be suited to Arena um, gaining a partner. So the fact that they've been acquired by Pfizer, obviously with a view to maximising its potential, assuming that the phase three data is positive and it reaches the market, um, sort of certainly fits the bill. The other thing, of course, is how this fits into Pfizer's broader portfolio. They look to be focused on safety with this asset, does that reflect their attitude towards the jack inhibitor market? Well, possibly. Um, obviously, the issue around safety with jack inhibitors has been raised by Pfizer's Zelljans. And the other interesting thing is that they spun out a couple of uh, TIC2 inhibitors uh, recently into an as yet undisclosed joint venture with another company that they're going to hold a small interest in. So I think there's definitely a suggestion that its focus in this market has um, has shifted slightly. Now, we've also recently had safety labelling for the JAK inhibitors updated. And what I wanted to flag was some research that we ran last week. We published the results this week, uh, polling rheumatologists in the US. And the feedback suggests actually that, and this poll was focused primarily on AbbVie's RINVOC, which is I guess you could say it's widely perceived to be the best jack, and it's expected to be the one that becomes the most widely prescribed drug in the class over the next sort of 12 to 18 months. So the poll was really focused on how these labeling changes are going to sort of potentially change the, the uptake of that drug in particular, which has so far escaped any sort of material impact from the initial safety data that was uh, released for Zeljance back in February, and even when the FDA released guidance in September, which 
infers that the jacks are more similar to different in terms of safety. You know, Rinvoc has really seen a steady increase in prescriptions over this whole period. But the interesting thing was uh, from this feedback that I think there now could possibly be a decline in Rinvoc use. And the feedback also suggested that AbbVie might have you know, quite a challenge positioning the drug as, uh, you know, a shoo-in for sort of preferential second-line use after the TNF inhibitors, which is now where the, the FDA is stipulating that JAK inhibitors must be used. So I think if, you know, if this is what is perceived to potentially be a safer JAK inhibitor, which is now possibly going to face some headwinds, um, it's understandable perhaps that Pfizer you know, despite the fact that it was the kind of, you know, the first company to really, um, you know, create this market with the approval of Zelljance, it's understandable, but that I think that the issues around safety are perhaps shaping their strategy in the immunology market. On a more positive note, what we can say is that with those updated labels being announced, I think it was sort of a week or 10 days ago, we've actually seen this week that the FDA has now cleared a number of what were outstanding JAK inhibitor line extension approvals. So clearly the FDA is now has set its stall out in terms of where they, uh, they think JAK inhibitors should be used and they're happy with the safety labeling. Switching gears here, let's focus on ASH. What were everyone's perceptions of the event this year? Yeah, so, you know, I think the, the biggest takeaway from for me was, you know, there's nothing really earth shattering, you know, as, as we've tended to see in recent years, a lot of the data, you know, sort of gets teased ahead of time with abstracts and that sort of thing. So there was no big earth shattering surprises. Um, the way I sort of looked at it is I broke it down into the myeloma side and then the lymphoma side, you know, on, on the myeloma side, the, the BCMA was obviously a big talking point, both with biospecifics and CAR-Ts. So on biospecifics, you know, a lot of programs, uh, two in particular from Regeneron and J&J, seem to be making a lot of progress. You know, early data suggests they really sort of honed in on some go-forward doses, um, and the response rates have been, you know, quite impressive. But the big question, of course, is going to be durability. And, you know, that's just going to take some time to see how it plays out. Um, so we'll see more data coming out uh, over the, the coming months and years. Uh, but so far, so good, I think, was was the takeaway for me on BCMA by specifics. And similarly for BCMA uh, CAR-Ts. So J&J's Silta cell, it seems to be, you know, there's a lot of talk about this may be the, the best in class in, in the CAR-Ts against BCMA, you know, extremely high response rates. Uh, it's going to compete with uh, the agent from, from it's Bristol-Myers now, it used to be Celgene. Um, and I think people are sort of waiting for these to, to hit the market next year and we'll see how it goes. But those are the two big takeaways on the myeloma side. Anybody else have uh, something to add? Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree with what you're saying on Siltacell. Um, you know, it's been a really interesting sort of story for that product because obviously if you go back a few years there were a lot of you know question marks about the data when when it wasn't in the hands of Janssen when it was just being developed by Legend Biotech obviously a, a Chinese company that few people knew about and it's been really interesting to see the sort of perception of it change and obviously there were I mean there were two sets of data that really sort of 
caught the attention at, at the conference this year, there was the the sort of the the two year um, follow up data in later line multiple myeloma, where it you know it continues to um, you know show these really impressive response rates and complete response rates. But then there was also some data, um, you know, earlier stage data, but sort of showing it um, in earlier lines of treatment. I think it was just after one prior therapy and it looks to be kind of equally impressive there. So, I mean, I've spoken to Janssen a few times in the last couple of weeks and I know that they think it can be a first line therapy. They know that it can replace transplant in some cases. Um but I think, you know, one of the other things I would say is I completely agree with you, Michael. I think, you know, in terms of the sort of biotech buzzy sort of share price moving readouts that Ash has been associated with in the past, that there was definitely less of that this year. But I think in terms of, you know, clinical practice, um, you know, I think you're going to talk about the, the CAR T and sort of um, lymphoma and what have you. These, these, are, these are products that physicians are already using and they're learning all the time with them. So I think. It may not be, you know, that we might not be seeing biotechs kind of see their share price increase massively on the back of this year's conference. But I think clinicians have probably come away um, feeling like, you know, they've learned a lot, actually, about how, um, you know, the near term sort of treatment landscape is going to change. Yeah, perhaps the, the way to think about it is that this Ash meeting was more about, you know, clinicians than it was for investors. Uh, perhaps that's one way to think about it. Um, on the lymphoma side. Uh, you, you mentioned it. So there was, again, biospecifics and CAR-Ts were uh, a lot of the talking points were related to those. On the biospecifics, it's kind of similar to, to the BCMI, to the BCMA product. So, you know, Roche has a pair of agents in testing. Uh, they seem to be doing pretty well so far. Uh, obviously, the questions are going to be, you know, how how long the durable the the, re the responses will last and and how early they can go in therapy and then on the car t side you got the, on the car t side in lymphoma was was actually kind of interesting so you had it coming into this meeting you had three products that were all read out in similar type studies trying to get into the second line setting so moving a little little ahead in the treatment paradigm two of them one's from Gilead with Yescarta and one from BMS with Brianzi, they were successful. And then a third from Novartis with Chimera was not successful. So that was kind of interesting because, you know, the trials were <clears throat> pretty similar. So, and the, you, the thought is that the products are pretty similar. So it was, it was interesting to see that the, the Novartis product didn't work. And, you know, there was no good consensus about really what happened with it, interestingly enough. Um, but the, the talk is with, with Yescarda and Brianzi, you know, that these are going to move into uh, second line therapy. The Yescarda from Gilead is already out there. It's already being used. So, you know, it's going to have a head start and that'll obviously put it in good stead in terms of the market positioning. Um, but the, they look pretty good. So um, it's obviously... Um, the question will be how much further can they go? Can they go earlier in, in treatment? Will newer sort of uh, modalities and, and twists on the CAR T, will they, will they come and sort of usurp these first movers quickly or will it take a while? Uh, it's obviously something we'll be watching. Um, and then the last talking point was, uh, and this is not the biospecifics or CAR Ts, but the Polarix data for uh, Roche's ADC. 
um, polity. So the, the big talk, this is perhaps the most um, sort of highest profile individual readout coming into ASH. And uh, again, this was sort of teased ahead of time with the abstract, but the big talking point was there was no overall survival advantage shown by polity, which is interesting because it showed a very strong PFS advantage um, earlier on in the top line results, and yet no overall survival advantage. So, you know, that that obviously was a disappointment, and um, we'll be speaking actually with, with a doctor later this week about uh, you know, sort of what that's going to do with, with in terms of the enthusiasm for using it in the first line setting, but um, it's, a, it's certainly an interesting finding. I just I wanted to add one more point on the bispecifics, both for myeloma and for lymphoma. Um, I, I think that those have, at this meeting, just continued to impress in terms of clinical response, and we are still looking for long-term durability data. But if they do prove durable, it's clear that bispecifics could really challenge CAR-T therapies against the same targets. They're, they're less of a logistical headache to administer. So far, it looks like they're a little bit less toxic, um, but on the other side, CAR-Ts offer this possibility of a one-time treatment. So I think the, the long-term data there will be really interesting to see how, how that landscape shakes out when it comes to CAR-Ts versus bispecifics against BCMA.